You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that went to go brood mysteriously out on the moors in the name of social distancing. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today, we're discussing the cultural rituals surrounding aquatic mammal-based transportation in Whale Rider by Witi Ihimara. The book is perhaps more well-known for the film adaptation in 2003, but nonetheless remains a fairly important cultural touchstone as a major contemporary literary work to come out of New Zealand, particularly by a Maori writer. The book is a coming-of-age story, kind of, but we'll get there, detailing a girl who was born into a Maori tribe in Wingara, New Zealand, and despite being handicapped with a lack of a penis, must help re-establish her people's ancestral connections as she leads them into the future, according to the description on the back of the book. They said penis? Yeah, they absolutely said penis. Oh, I mean, without penis and balls, how can you find your way in the water? <laughs> that's what Moana taught us. Yeah, you gotta dip them in. <laughs> yeah, that's how you do the wayfinding. Watch the movie, it's there. Will Rider is a very short book, clocking in at almost exactly 150 pages and considered YA or juvenile fiction, which is another thing we'll tangle with further in. Now, despite the fact that the book was published in 1987, I did not read Whale Rider in school, because the only people we read that were still alive and kicking at the time in, in that reading group were Ray Bradbury, good old S.E. Hinton, and Sandra Cisneros, taking off that non-white author box. However, I got this particular book off of RJ's bookshelf. Yeah, my bookshelf. <laughs> you want to talk about that? My bookshelf's prettier. I mean, it's my bookshelf. Yeah, it's your book. <laughs> yeah, it's my book. It's on my bookshelf. Yeah, so you read this book in school? Yeah, at college, but all the same, I suppose. But did you read it? I looked at the cover, at least. <laughs> How many pages in between I got to, uh, that's up for debate. Mm. So do you want to tell our listeners what your relationship with this work is? <laughs> I showed the movie to my composition class in a summer course. Good it job. was sandwiched right between Lives of Others and Wally. Teaching. Um, people might not be as familiar with Lives of Others as they are with Wally, so that might not be as funny to them. The Lives of Others is a German film about living under surveillance in what, like East Germany? Duh. <laughs> yeah. So in between that and uh, Wally, he got the tale of a, a coming of age Maori girl in New Zealand whale rider. And I had one student who very openly cried immediately after all three films. In particular, I believe it was after Wally. He had excused himself from the room. Because the first two movies, I guess he felt it was okay to cry after. I mean, they're emotional films, but I guess he was embarrassed that Wally got him also. There is no shame in crying at Wally. I just got a uh, I just got a Letterboxd account and I went a little bit ham picking movies and reviewing them. Bad takes, just bad takes all around. I have a hard time assigning number values to things, but what the review that I did write about Wally specifically is that I have more of an emotional attachment to that cartoon robot than I do to certain actual real human beings. So I stand with your student. Although was this a a kid or? I'm not adding my student. You're not saying a name. There's hippo laws out there. 
you're not like giving their name and address or something. They don't listen to the podcast. As a teacher, you should know the FERPA laws. That's right. HIPAA's doctor. Got you. I forgot about that. I love FERPA. It was great. Because my, the, my 18-year-old's parents would email me and be like, little Jimmy's got an F because he doesn't show up to class. How do we fix this? And I'd be like, FERPA, I don't have to talk to you. <laughs> anyway, this is like a 40-year-old man. He was in touch with his emotions. Good for him. He cried at a variety of things. I support him. Anyway, Whale Rider. Um, so you you kind of are familiar with it. Yeah. So we, we actually watched the movie uh, before I ended up reading the book. They're super different as it turns out. So unfortunately, I am probably going to refer to it a lot talking about the book. And I apologize for that in advance. So, as is the case when we cover more contemporary authors who are still roaming this mortal plane, I imagine that this bio is going to be a bit more on the lean side, which, unfortunately for me, means you've probably filled it with color, or weird high school sports mascots. Oh yeah, I did. We're gonna or, get there. Or financial acronyms, or references to movies that came out 20 years before either of us were born, or the names of ambassadors to Tanzania. What's it gonna be? Just lay it on me and get it over with. Oh, the mascots, yes. God and he worked with the state, so he, he's the actual ambassador here, so I didn't need to dig too far. Oh, good. Okay. Witch was born February 7th, 1944, and continues to live, survive, given that it's 2020, to this day. I mean, it kind of feels like we're all just, you know, surviving at this point. Hey, New Zealand's down to zero fucking COVID cases. He was born near Gisborne, New Zealand, which some say has handled this whole 2020 problem much better than some other countries. Yeah, there we go. I won't name names, though. (laughs) Mama Wits was Julia Clem, and Daddy Wits was Tom Ihimara. The two birthed eight kids, of which Wits is the eldest. His siblings are Kararena, Thomas, Tay Vicky, Derek, Gay, and Neil. Now, Mama and Daddy Wits both are of Maori descent and both have more traditional Maori names. You may have been thinking that Julia and Tom are not all that Maori sounding. Mama is traditionally known as Turi Teratima Mana, and Daddy is known as Teha Oruhia. Dad is also of Anglo-Saxon descent, so you know, Tom. Mm. I guess it's kind of like having a Jewish name and the name you actually go by, you know, if you're the average American Jew, I suppose. Or in the case of the Americans, good TV show, your spy name and your real Russian name. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the same thing. Got multiple names. You want to share your Jewish no, name? No, <laughs> that's my secret name. Okay. It's not really a secret. You ought to share yours. I don't have one. I never got like a bat mitzvah or whatever. Yours is so secret they didn't even tell you. So a theme that Witz focuses on in a lot of his work is walking the line between traditional Maori beliefs and culture and the beliefs and culture of the encroaching colonial powers, in particular the English with a capital E in this case. A lot of this is rooted in his own childhood where he claims his first memories are of Maori prayer gatherings and Maori teachings but he was also taught to be a good little Western thinker as well. The town Wits grew up in, Gisborne, is a town of around 35,000 people, about half the population is Maori, and the big industry in the area is agricultural in nature. The average worker earns about $24,000 a year, so not exactly a bustling city. He wrote of growing up on the family farm as a child thusly, quote, 
Season after season, doing the same repetitive work, buying the cheapest stock and hoping that cattle grown on sparse grass would bring maximum gain at the annual sales. In summer, mustering the sheep to move from one paddock to the other. Watching cattle die in times of drought, that was hard to bear. We're losing lambs even after we pull them out of their mothers. We'd blow into their nostrils to help them breathe the chill air, only to feel the slight shiver in their bodies, the sign of impending death. Then there were the usual chores that my sisters and I had to do before we caught the school bus. We were up at five to light the fire, get the stove going, and lay the table for breakfast. My sisters squabbled over who would take our baby brother Derek from his cradle, change his nappy, and feed him. Meanwhile, morning and night, I shared milking, chopping wood, the occasional slaughtering of an animal, for its mudding, and other heavier farm duties with my cousins. One of those cousins was named, by the way, Banana. It was cousins Ivan, Minnie, Kiki, Tom, and Banana. And Banana. Can't forget about Bananas. It's a big Minion fan. Oh, God. And when we returned home from school in the afternoons, there were always other jobs to do. Fencing, boiling offal for the dogs, daubing maggot-infested sheep with tar, or tending the vegetable garden. Constantly balancing profit and loss put paid to any notion that farm life was easy. However, there was something about the physical nature of farming that appealed to me. In between all this work, Wits did go to the local rural school. Worked pretty hard, though. That's that's a lot. Jesus. His best subject was English. He decided pretty early on that a goal of his was to write a book about uh, Maori that would be read in every New Zealand school. Wits took well to school. At the age of 15, he sat for his school certificate. For those of you who do not understand the process, think of it as him sitting for his uh, GED when he was 15. To pass, he needed a score of 200, and Wits got a score of 200. Which recalls the day he earned the certificate, quote, One mark less and my life might have been entirely different. The past may have been the minimum, but as my headmaster Jack Allen said to Dad, shaking his hand vigorously as if he didn't quite believe it, Congratulations, Tom. Well done. Not my hand. Dad's. <laughs> you think Dad sat for the examination, I said to my mother Julia, as yet another local queuing up slapped him on the back. Good on you, Tom. <laughs> when parents steal the credit of their kids. <laughs> Which thought now that he was done with school, he would turn to farming full-time. After all, being in the community he was in, there was no way to turn an education into something lucrative or worthwhile. Enter his grandfather, Para. Para was a Maori Abraham in the Mormon church. Kind of like a missionary. Now, I'll admit, I thought this was likely just some small little one-off thing. Polynesian Mormon missionaries? What are the odds? Actually, as I learned... Pretty high. Huh. Megan. Yeah. Did you know that it's estimated about 30% of all Polynesians are Mormon? That <laughs> No, I did not. That Tonga is the most Mormon country in the world with 60% of its population identifying as Mormon? No, but I have a feeling the large amount of colonizing Mormon missionaries probably has something to do with that. On a similar note, 25% of the Tongans that live in the U.S. live in Utah. This is totally that, that a thing. one I can't account for. <laughs> so you see, when Joseph Smith founded Mormonism in 1830, he immediately set his sights on expanding the religion in the U.S. and Europe, and then the Pacific. The first Mormon missionaries uh, were in the Pacific about a decade later. The first non-European translation of the Book of Mormon was completed in Hawaii, the language. One of the reasons Mormons seem to take well among the Pacific is that it focuses on the family, and in many traditions in the area, they focus on the family also. Multi-generational homes, long-standing culture passed down from one generation to the next, etc. So go figure. Back to Wits. 
Grandpappy Para finds out that his grandson has a good head on his shoulders, which means he might be good at spreading the word of the Latter-day Saints. Huh. Although him being sent to church was not what he wanted for himself, he told his dad, quote, I don't care what plans granddad uh, might be dreaming up for me. I'm not going to the church, nor afterwards am I going to take a year off as a missionary and prophesize among the pagans. You need me here, and this is where I'm staying. And dad said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Which then took up the fight with his mother, and he figured being the firstborn son, being the biggest help around, this would surely sway her. What she did is take him into town to the white family she worked for as a housekeeper. Basically, she showed Wits societal placement of the Maori in their own community and later explained to Wits why he needed to go to church and learn so that he will not have to become subservient like she has to be in her life. She said to him, quote, Your father and I didn't raise you to help us on the farm. Thank you for offering, but no thank you. You're going to go be a Mormon and gosh darn it, you're going to like it. In short, Wits was sent to church. Which said of the church, quote, The temple was the first built in the southern hemisphere and floodlit at night. You could see it from miles away. You wouldn't have been the only car driver who asked, What is that thing? It looked like a celestial wedding cake with phosphorescent icing piercing the sky. Oh, wow. He did what he needed to do with the church and in life and moved on. He had warmed to education and gained the knowledge and confidence the education offered him. He took his studies to the university level. Initially, when moving on to university life, Wits attended the University of Auckland, home of the... Actually, you know what? I don't know what they are the home of. In an Ono request first, we may have come across an institution of learning that does not have an identifiable mascot. What? They don't have a mascot? Or you don't know what the hell it is? It does seem that the school once in a while might run out a kiwi, the bird, not the fruit, as some sort of unofficial mascot, which would not be all that unique given their location. Back in 2016, the school did announce a voting campaign to name their soon-to-be-born Kiwi mascot, but nothing seems to have ever come of it. I think part of the problem is the top vote-getters, given it was 2016, were, in turn, Harambe, <laughs> Beaky McBeakface, <laughs> Rio, and my personal favorite, Debt, which is a shortened form of student debt, as the proposal read, in honor of the student debt that we will all accumulate, as this Kiwi grows, so will our student debt. And when the Kiwi becomes 15, his name will still be relevant because we'll still be paying off that debt. Ooh, that's a good one. How do you choose? Well, apparently they chose none. Cowards. And they lived on without a mascot. Anyway, the university life did not sit well with Wits at the time, perhaps because he was also working at the newspaper and as a postal service worker during the school year, he washed out. But he then took his talents to Victoria University of Wellington, which, holy shit, no mascot either. Mm. What are the odds? While at Victoria, he met Jane Cleghorn, who was a student and a librarian at the university. The two later married and had a couple of daughters. Jane pushed Wits to write more and to submit his work for publication. He submitted a work titled Liar, which was published by The Listener. He says that he stopped trying to emulate clever literary writers like Faulkner and Hemingway. Good move. Yeah. Yeah, fuck them. And instead focused on being, quote, spontaneous, never thinking, not going back on work until it was finished, doing a first draft rough as guts. That's my process since then. I'm not a careful writer. I grab things from all over the place. Liar seems an appropriate title for a first published work. My family says I've been lying ever since. 
He graduated in 1971 at the age of 27. The next year, in 1972, he published his first short story collection, Punamu Punamu, Greenstone Greenstone, which addressed the theme of traditional communal Maori society being confronted by mechanized individualistic peka, aka European society. The publication made Witts the first author of Maori descent to publish a collection of short stories in 1972. You know, more than halfway through the 20th century. Access to the press, my friends, is not always swift. Oof. He followed this up with his novel, Tangy, Morning, Morning with a U, O-U, ah, like sad morning, gotcha. which was written in English and again was the first publication of the sort by an author of Maori descent. He continued to hone his writing as he began working for New Zealand's Foreign Affair Ministry. He was not exactly happy when he was hired because he realized they only wanted him because of his Maori lineage. Quote, I got angry. I said they only wanted me as a Maori. The foreign affairs official looked at me in the eye and said bluntly, Yes. <laughs> yup. Well, at least they were upfront about it. While there, he served in a number of roles, including as consul to the United States until 1989. While consul, he did get some overseas postings. So while you might have thought, finally, an Ono Glick class author who never made a pilgrimage to New York City, because fuck, dude is from New Zealand. That's like really far away. Fuck you. You're wrong. <laughs> as he did get a posting in Big Apple for some time. He also spent some time in Washington, D.C. as well. He was vacationing in New York Well, when his daughters asked him to write the book, but we'll get there. <laughs> no, because it's a Jewish whale. I don't know what that means. I don't know. That's how he refers to it. Or how other people refer to it. What? People like refer to it like it's a Jewish whale story. It came across in something. I didn't dig into it. This was weird. But... Well, because the whale swam up the, the Hudson. There was this thing that happened at the same time. Oh. I didn't dig into it either. It was okay. these coinciding events. I don't know why it's referred to as a Jewish whale, but there was, a, there was this event at the same time where it was this big deal that this whale swam up the Hudson and everyone was like, there's a fucking whale swimming up the Hudson. I don't know why that makes it a Jewish whale. <laughs> <laughs> Wants to be in New York. Wants a bagel and schmear. I guess. After leaving the ministry, which took up a position at the University of Auckland in 1990 as a professor and distinguished creative fellow in Maori literature. He remained there for 20 years until 2010. In 1995, Witz penned Knights in the Garden of Spain, which is about a middle-aged, seemingly cishet married man with children who comes to the realization that he is actually homosexual. Many view the novel as a get-ready-for-this-new-word, oh no, what class family, a Roman aclef. Basically a thinly veiled retelling of a real-life tale. Critics believe this is a Roman aclef as it parallels Witt's own journey. He had come out to himself in 1984 and began the work, but out of sensitivity to his daughters, he did not finish or publish it then. He claims that the book is a bit of a personal failure, as the protagonist of the novel is white, which Witt's is very much not. He claims he dropped the ball by not making the protagonist Maori and not helping to redefine sexuality in his own culture. Much later in life, when he was 73, he wrote a memoir in which he described it as a child, he had been raped by a cousin. Oh. He turned to self-harm as a coping mechanism and wrote about how he never opened up to anyone about that chapter in his life until he wrote the memoir. He said of his memoir, quote, It has been a long and sometimes torturous and challenging and in the end absolutely luminous journey. This book deals with the dilemma of am I still a man because of this rape happened to me? It affected all of my relationships. I tried to self-harm. I tried so many things to not be on this planet but I always had mentors and beautiful people who would pull me up and out of myself. This book is about writing myself out of that and to become a fairy tale prince out of all of this. 
I needed to feel I could overcome this, then he wouldn't win and he wouldn't stop me from being the person who I was. He wouldn't stop me from doing this work. Ah, holy shit. Speaking of being a prince, in a way of note, Wits is tangentially related to British royalty. In 2004, his nephew, Gary Christie Lewis, married Lady Davina Windsor. Gary was the first Maori to marry into the British royal family. As of now, Lady Davina is 31st in line for the throne. But you know, 2020. <laughs> so keep those fingers crossed, m'lady. You know, 2020. Shit's wild. It's also important to note that while Wits is generally celebrated as a writer, after Wits wrote Torwena Sea in 2009, a fictionalized version of the story of a Maori man imprisoned on Tasmania in the 1840s, he was accused of plagiarism. Wits attributed the lapse to lax research practices and purchased the remaining copies of the book from his publisher before working on releasing updated copies that included proper citations, although they were never published. The University of Auckland investigated the incident and ruled that Wits's action did not constitute misconduct in research as the actions did not appear to be deliberate and he had apologized. As an educator and a writer, look, I know people make mistakes. And he did cite and attribute more things than he quote-unquote accidentally forgot to cite correctly. But still, this is mind-boggling to me. I know you can get lazy sometimes when it comes to citation, but here are hot tips for you writers and students out there. One, if you're the kind of person who likes to kind of just sit down and write and type and not have to stop and put citations in, put big, bold, underlined asterisks in your writing wherever you know you need a citation. Because then you kind of have a mark where you got to go back and get rid of those asterisks. Yep. The other thing is, is nothing goes in like your work until it's on your work cited page. And so if you're looking at notes, those notes do not go into your work until it's on your work cited page. You do those two things, I promise you, you'll never be accused of plagiarism. Simple as that. When you're copying and pasting off of Wikipedia, maybe remove the hyperlinks before you turn it in. That's a hot tip for me. Who <laughs> received so many papers from students who couldn't even be bothered to take off the fucking hyperlinks when they copy and pasted from Wikipedia. Shit's hard. Which has been awarded the Distinguished Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2004 for his service to literature. In 2009, he received the Te Tohu Taikatiti Atewaka Toy Award, the highest honor given by Maoridom in the arts. He received an Arts Foundation Laureate the same year. His earlier mentioned memoir won the New Zealand Book Award for Nonfiction, and in 2017 he was honored with the 2017 Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. There you go, Meg. All right. So you mentioned everything except when Whale Rider was published. That's you're getting that. Okay. Good job. A minimal amount of BSery. I appreciate it. I mean, I'm trying to think about universities that don't have mascots. Surely, there, there's surely there must be some. Maybe Not every... A, maybe it's maybe a foreign thing, you know? In America, we love our sports. We do love our sports mascots, yes. I, I just love the idea of a mascot named Student Debt. It's so fucking oh, great. Step. Step, yes. Step. Stepped. But then it's short for Student Debt, and that is gross. <laughs> student Debt. Gross. Man, not Harambe. <laughs> you see, things were so much simpler in 2016. Harambe, Beaky, Beaky McBeak Beak Beak face. face. 
Hey everybody, it's Megan, letting you know that this episode was brought to you in part by... Hank Green! Jesus Christ! How did you even get in here? The mid-break is my space. It's Megan's time. Megan doesn't get time. But anyway, Hank Green and his new novel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, wherever books are sold. That doesn't answer my question. Wait, would this be the sequel to his number one New York Times bestselling debut novel, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing? The story of a young woman who is thrown into fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious 10-foot-tall robots that have appeared in every major city, which the Associated Press said was a thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from their brand? Yes. Oh, shit. I actually really like that book. Well, the San Francisco Chronicle did say that it was sparkling with mystery, humor, and the uncanny. And now that novel is out in paperback or at your library, and also for cheap in audio form. Awesome. And it looks like, uh, I'm just being handed something here, that the sequel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is already enjoying sparkling reviews, with Library Journal's starred review saying, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers a sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. Sounds like a good book. Why are we talking about it anyway? Because Hank wanted his publisher to sponsor a ton of small podcasts, but they said that it was too weird. So instead, he took 5% of his advance from the book and did it himself. Yeah, that is weird. But what's not weird is checking out A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. Because if you're listening to this show, the odds are high that you're a nerd who probably already knows who Hank Green is, and that he makes dope stuff. And his books are no exception. So first, catch up with an absolutely remarkable thing. And then grab his new novel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. Available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobooks wherever books are sold. Now get out of my mid-break and never come back. The Whale, as it is written. So before we get into anything, the first thing in the book is a note from the author himself saying that he was motivated to write this book while being on vacation with his daughters and after they had watched a bunch of movies, having them complain that the boys were always the heroes and the girls were always yelling, save me, save me. And this crossed with this aforementioned incident of a whale swimming up the Hudson River, which apparently they were calling a Jewish whale. <laughs> I don't I'm looking into this. Look, at, look, look into this. Get back to me. I did not investigate this further. But uh, keep that in your back pocket for later, this idea that he was writing this for his daughters and this idea that they wanted this this girl hero thing, because we're, we're going to dissect that. Anyway, so the novel itself is split into sections delineated by the seasons as well as narrated from multiple viewpoints. It starts with a prologue explaining the myth of Kahotia Terangi, the whale rider, and how he came to settle in Wangara, New Zealand, and take the name Paikia. Then we get a chapter from the POV of an ancient bull whale. Potentially even the one that was written by Kautia Tirangi. Times are tough for the whale pod now in the present day, though. There's hunters and global warming and radiation and shit, and he's finding it a lot nicer to retreat into the nostalgic memories of being ridden. Long and hard and for hours on end. I'm sorry, this, this is just, it's happening on its own. After that, we come to our other main narrator, a young Maori man named Rawiri, just 16 at the start of the story when his niece Kahu is born. So let's quickly delineate the family tree here. There's Koro Apinara, who's the chief of Wangara and an ordinary old bastard, and is married to Nanny Flowers. Their grandkids are Wariri and his older brother, Pororangi, 
who is next in line to be chief, and whose wife has just given birth to Koro and Nanny Flowers' great-grandkid, that's Kahu, who is, much to Koro's great despair, not a boy, because that would have been super convenient for ensuring that the line of chiefs keep on chiefing on. Where are Porongi and Rawiri's parents? I don't know. They never say. Don't worry about it. Just there. Yeah, no, no, they're not there. Well, they're in the, uh, the greater cosmos. <laughs> what matters is that Koro gets a call from his grandson that his first child has just been born, and the man's first fucking reaction isn't like, congrats on the baby, but a girl? I will have nothing to do with her. No penis, no attention. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. Then he gets in a rowboat and angrily rows out to the middle of the ocean to sulk which is apparently something he regularly does when he's mad. It's kind of hard to do now that we're out in Colorado, but if we were still in Florida, I'd be like, yeah, that tracks. But Nanny Flowers, who is always threatening to divorce him and whose pet name for him is Paca, which apparently means bugger, which as as an uh, American, I'm never going to be super clear on. A little bugger. Like, does it mean fucker? But like, it's like the, like the cute version. A person who penetrates the anus of someone during sexual intercourse. <laughs> but it's like the diminutive of like that. She, she calls him Paka, but it, it seems to be like a pet name. Uh, she chases him out on a dinghy that actually has like a motor and ties a rope to his boat and just drags him back to shore, which is just a fucking great mental image. So Rariri then details a much worse fight that came shortly after when Koro learned that Porangi had named the baby Kahu after Kahutia Tirangi, the great ancestor of their tribe, who was a dude. And that apparently Nanny Flowers had put the idea in his head because all this, oh my god, my grandson has birthed a useless she-beast, was starting to piss her off. Rawiri tells us that Nanny Flowers has a long, rich history of doing this sort of thing because she feels that Koro doesn't respect her side of the family and that she's descended from her own great ancestor, a woman named Mirawai, who had commanded the gods to save her family. After the name fight, Koro makes sure to go off for his ocean tantrum in the boat that has the motor in it, which would have been smart, except that Nanny Flowers accounted for that, and earlier had siphoned out half the gas so he wouldn't be able to get back, and then proceeded to ignore his cries for help all afternoon. I know we're only 20 pages in, but I think I love Nanny Flowers. <laughs> I think she's my favorite. Then the family finds out that Porangi's wife, Rahua, is struggling with the effects of what was apparently a very difficult and complicated birth and is in intensive care. Porangi needs to stay with her, but she calls and asks that someone comes and picks up Kahu's birth cord so it can be buried in Wangara, linking her to the village and her people. I'm sure you can imagine how Koro feels about that! Great. No! No! No, no, doesn't want it. Oh. Nanny Flowers argues that as Pororangi's daughter, it's her birthright, and he's like, well, then you do it. And because she rules, Nanny Flowers is like, well, then I fucking will. I might be paraphrasing slightly. So Nanny Flowers asks Rariri to give her a ride on his motorcycle. It turns out Rariri's part of a motorcycle gang called the Headhunters, and they all drive with him and Nanny to the airport, and some of her old lady friends see her and are like, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm queen of the headhunters. And I'm sure this is a book about a girl who at some point rides a whale, but like, yeah, I'm in no hurry. Like, this is badass. The following year, still a diplomat in New York, he wrote Whale Rider, prompted by reports of a whale in the Hudson River. Quote, the people in New York say she's a New York Jewish girl. They say our New York book is doing well. <laughs> 
the people in New York say she's a New, New York, York Jewish, Jewish girl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it says right there. <laughs> that's how he tells the story. All right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the only, that's, that's, that's it, huh? That's his quote. Okay, but you, you made it sound like everyone. You said everyone was calling it. Well, they refer to his New York book after that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> was the book Jewish or was the whale Jewish? Well, she <laughs> was a Jewish girl, but he wrote the book in response to the Jewish girl whale, so that everyone calls it his New York book. Gotcha. They meet Rawiri's auntie at the airport, who gives them Kahu's birth cord, which they bury in secret under a carving of Kahutia Tirangi riding his whale, and Nandi Flowers asks that he watches over Kahu. As they leave, Rawiri hears the sound of whales in the distance. <laughs> so majestic. <laughs> Okay, that's that's just a fart. But that's enough. That's just a fart noise. You you can. Uh, uh, uh. Three months later, Rahua dies, presumably from the difficulties involved with delivering Kahu. But we never get the specifics. After she dies, Rahua's mom is like, "Hmm, I'm gonna raise Kahu over in my town. Fuck her dad and his whole family, I guess." But poor Rangi lets her take Kahu, and, and then Rawiri gives us a very long genealogy lesson, and like, dude, your brother just gave his kid up. Like, why isn't he at least going to, like, live with her or something? Is this a New Zealand thing? Is it, is it a Maori thing? He never says, so I don't know, but I, I don't think so, because everyone's really upset about it, but also just accepts it? Like, she just goes to live with her mom's family. Like, why isn't she going to live with her dad? Like, her actual still-living parent. Nah. I don't get it. At least until Kahu was about two years old. And then Pororangi decides, hmm, I guess I miss my kid. And goes to get her and bring her around for a visit. Just two years later, you know. Everyone's excited to see her. Except Koro. But she is absolutely excited to see him. And communicates this in the way that toddlers and other small, excitable creatures generally are wont to do. No, not, 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 not through whale song. What do what toddlers and, and other little yappy things do when they get real excited? Piss their pants. Yes. She pees on him. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't do a whale song at him. In the meantime, Kuro, much more occupied with the task of preserving Maori culture in the face of the oncoming 21st century, starts an informal school for the men and boys of Wangara to ensure that their history, customs, and language are properly passed down. He talks about how back in his day, there were all kinds of tests and challenges he had to pass. Physical strength, memorizing ancestral genealogy, diving down underwater to get a special carved stone, biting some guy's nasty toe. You know, important rites of cultural tradition. And Koro stops talking at this point. Not because everyone wanted to know why the fuck he bit a man's toe, but because baby Kahu wandered in and, yes, bit him right on the toe. What? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a toe-biting sound? Yep. I'm not going to address that. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy went to the bank. No. This little piggy... Oh. Went to Winn-Dixie. What? This little piggy went wee-wee-wee all the way home. Okay, hang on. Okay, wait, because now, now you're making me have to think about it. This little piggy went to market... This little piggy stayed home. This little piggy went f to work. 
shit. Fuck, I don't remember it either. Apart from the wee 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 all the way home. This little piggy went to the post office? Maybe? This is gonna bother me. Um, that can't possibly be it, can it? <laughs> oh, God. What, what is it? What does it say? Oh, yeah. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. Okay, I remember that. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had none. That, that does sound right. This little piggy went wee, wee, wee all the way home. Why'd that little piggy have roast beef? It's kind of fucked up. That little piggy's dark. Gotta eat. So yeah, she bites him on the toe. Ramiri says that at the time, they all probably should have understood that this was a sign of things to come, but in the moment, it was just funny because haha, baby bite grouchy man's gross toe. So at this point, Kahu comes and stays with Ramiri and Co. every summer. When she starts talking, because she only ever hears Nanny Flowers call Koro Paka, she thinks that that's his name, and it becomes the only thing she ever calls him, even when everyone tries to get her to call him Koro. So, if looking at her and seeing not a great-grandson wasn't bad enough, she's also calling him a bugger every time she sees him. So she just toddles around after him, screaming, I love you, Paka! And he's just like, this is hell. I'm in hell right now. Because, you know, God forbid someone's great-grandkid adores them for what I can see is absolutely no clear reason. That's the one thing that drives me nuts this whole book. Kahu loves Koro so much. And she never stops. Even when she gets old enough to know better. And she's never given a reason to. We'll talk more about it later, but this is a huge change they make in the movie. Like, Koro's still kind of a dick when it comes to the I wanted a grandson to pass on man things to and keep our tribe alive. But he still loves Kahu as, like, a person and a member of his family. But in the book, it's just like, can we please put this thing somewhere? It's, it's annoying me. In the corner. Which is his response to her following him into the special Maori man school which he has to keep kicking her out of. She overhears him talking about how their people once had a special connection with whales, but that in the recent past, they lost that connection by killing whales. Like, in the overfishing sort of way. Kahu starts sobbing, and Koro finds her and kicks her out. Nanny Flowers assumes that she's just sad because Koro's being mean to her again, and asks Rawiri to do an activity with her. So Rawiri takes her to a movie about whale hunting. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so she cries some more. Afterwards, at the beach, she makes what Ruiri describes as, quote, eerie noises, and he sees some orcas breach the surface of the water. So, you know, normal little kid stuff. Then we get a little section with the ancient bull whale mourning for members of the pod that have been lost to radiation poisoning in the water as they continue to search for safe waters. If we were watching a documentary... This is the part where they would play a single violin and the whales would, like, nuzzle each other and I would probably cry, because I'm a huge baby. Yeah, they'd make, like, that, yeah, they'd make that sound. Your one student would probably cry. <laughs> Meanwhile, when Kaku turns four, Ruri gets the itch to go out and see the world, because, I'm sorry, is, isn't this book about the whale rider? Ruri is not the one on the cover of the book. He's not named after the ancestral founder of Wangara. Why are we following his restless 20-year-old ass to Australia? Because our lives are intertwined like a rope, Meg. And we have to stick together, otherwise the rope will break apart. That's from the movie, it's not in the book. Rope. <laughs> I'll tell you. 
is because we need to watch him gain a new contextualization for his homeland and culture, and also so he can experience racism, I guess. He spends two years living in Sydney as a construction worker and having a pretty awesome time meeting new people and making friends. He moves in with this guy, Jeff. And then Jeff gets a call from his folks that his dad is in poor health, and so they need him to come home to Papua New Guinea to help work on the family business, a coffee plantation. Emphasis on the plantation. Jeff asks Ruriri if he'd like to come with, and he figures, eh, why not? This is where things get kind of interesting, because Ruriri calls home to tell them that he's going to Papua New Guinea, and Annie Flowers yells, quote, Oh my god, no, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. <laughs> Which, yikes. But then Jeff and Ruriri get there, and Jeff, who is a very white Aussie, introduces Ruriri to his parents, and they're like, Hmm, Jeff, I see you've brought your friend. You didn't mention he was brown. So you've kind of got this, like, sliding scale of racism. That happens. <laughs> yes. Ruiri does look around and see the parallels between the Maori and the native people of Papua New Guinea, and I've got uh, a good little section here that I wanted to read that I thought was good and has a, a lot of complexity to it. Quote, In many respects, the parallels with the Maori in New Zealand, uh, in reference to the natives in Papua New Guinea, were very close, except that we didn't have to advance as many years in one lifetime. However, our journey was possibly more difficult because it had to be undertaken within European terms of acceptability. We were a minority, and much of our progress was dependent on European goodwill. And there was no doubt that in New Zealand, just as in Papua New Guinea, our nationalism was also galvanizing the people to become one Maori nation. So it was that in Australia and Papua New Guinea, I grew into an understanding of myself as a Maori, and I guess was being prepared for my date with destiny. That's some pretty heady shit for juvenile fiction. It is? <laughs> that sure as hell didn't make it into the movie, which is something we'll talk about. We'll get there. So over the next two years, Ruri starts to get homesick, and things get strained between him and Jeff's family, if not necessarily between him and Jeff, on account of his being Maori. He gets a letter from his family that Pororangi has married a woman named Anna that he was dating for a while, and that she's pregnant. And that Koro is stoked as fuck that he might finally have that great-grandson that he's been dreaming about. Then, coming back from a party where Jeff's mom said a bunch of racist shit about Ruriri when she knew he was in earshot, ending on, quote, Well, at least he's not a native. Nice. Jeff accidentally runs over a man walking in the road that apparently no one except Ruriri noticed before it was too late. Jeff's mom starts shrieking that it's just, quote, some native, and that they have to drive away now as fast as possible before his tribe comes and kills them as payback. But Ruiri yells for them to let him out because he recognizes that it's literally a dude named Bernard who works for them on their own fucking plantation. But they're forced to just leave him in the road, and Ruiri's like, well, fuck, who's to say that I won't be next? And he gets his ass back to Wangara. Also, Anna gave birth to a girl. So now Kahu has a little sister. And Koro is fairly certain the gods hate him. So now Kahu is seven years old. And for whatever reason, I guess maybe because her dad is married again, she's living in Wangara full time. Ruiri is on uncle duty and he loves this kid. He takes her out for rides on his motorcycle and listens to her talk about school and how she wants to go to university. But Koro says it's a waste of time for girls to go to university. And God damn it, Koro, it's the 1980s, not the fucking 1950s. You won't let her do tribal stuff. You don't want her to go get an education. She can't win. You gotta remember, it's New Zealand, though, and I don't know how the dateline works. 
tricky out there in the ocean. Is it tomorrow? Is it yesterday? <laughs> five years ago? Five I, years ahead? Yeah, I, don't I, don't, I don't know. But speaking of education, Kaku invites everyone to a special end of the school year ceremony. And everyone comes except Koro, obviously. And Kahu is a part of all these different performances, and it turns out she won a primary school speech contest and was set to perform it entirely in the Maori tongue, and it was dedicated to her great-grandfather. Obviously. Obviously. This poor fucking kid, man. And Nanny Flowers and Rawiri and her dad and basically everyone is on the verge of tears as Kahu, a seven-year-old, manages to get through her speech and they all tell her what a great job she did and Nanny Flowers is like, that's it, I am divorcing that man's ass for real this time. And Kahu's like, no, Nanny, it's not Paka's fault that I'm a girl. And like, fuck, dude, did you ever want to throw hands with a fictional great-grandpa before? You do now. <laughs> fucking do. <laughs> Two weeks later, Koro, undeterred from his quest to find Wangara's next top chief, takes a bunch of boys out on a boat and chucks a special carved stone out into the water and is like, go get it. Then no one can get it. Boom. <laughs> and then they go home because Koro hadn't really planned for that. He goes home and cries, and so Nanny and Kahu leave the house, because that's kind of a lot to be around, and Kahu asks if they can go for a ride in Rawiri's boat. He says, yeah, sure, and I'm sure you can figure out where this is going. Can you figure out where this is going? Halfway into the lake, but then they can't get back because Grandma drank some more gas again. She decided, man, this actually winds up being my kink. Who knew? Why are you assuming she's drinking the gas? You don't waste good gas, Rick. Am I right? No! Damn. Yeah, she got a grenade flower was like, mmm, delicious gasoline. Well, it's when she siphoned it out. Yeah, she got just like a little dribble. And that's when she learned she got the taste of gas. Kahu's like, hey, so I bet this is right around where Koro dropped a special stone. And Rawiri's like, uh, yeah, I think so. And Kahu's like, cool, bye. And just dives right into the fucking water. And then some dolphins do a mind meld with her, show her where the stone is, and she just gets it. That's a thing that happens. And she's just like, cool, I got the rock. Maybe Koro will love me now. Now that I'm Aquaman. Look, if someone was Aquaman, I would love them too. <laughs> but when they get back, Nanny takes the stone and is like, let's not tell him. He's not ready yet. And yeah, I'm with her on this one. I think Koro's head would probably fucking explode. Gotta wait on it for the right time if yeah. it ever comes. Meanwhile, in Antarctica, the ancient bull whale's pod continues to have a very bad time, as huge shafts of ice fall into the water and almost kill them. The bull whale is like, this is bullshit. I miss my rider. He wouldn't know what to do. Those were the good old days. Pack it up, people. We're going to New Zealand. We're going to go find him. And his whale wife is like, yo, there is a very good chance we will die if we go to New Zealand. And the bull whale is like, nah, it'll be fine. Yeah. The next chapter opens with 200 whales stranded on a beach near Wankara. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, this obviously makes the news, along with some gruesome footage of people coming to butcher the dying whales. And Ikimara does not shy away from using some very visceral and descriptive imagery of 
spouting blood and removal of whale jawbones. Here I thought Herman Melville had so desensitized me from being able to give a shit about fictional whales, and along comes Witi Himara like, Hey, you want to hear about how all these whales came to die together and won't go back into the ocean because they can't leave the corpses of their family members and so some assholes are driving up and dismembering them? Do you want to feel feelings about it? You know, for kids. For the kids. (laughs) Both Koro and Pororangi see the events on the news but are stuck on the South Island where they were for a a conference due to bad weather. And they call Ruiri to tell him that the responsibility falls to him to do something about this. Ruiri takes charge, first making sure to tell Nanny Flowers to make sure that Kahu, uh, who just had her eighth birthday, doesn't see the broadcast, because it's already pretty traumatizing even without the addition of her magical connection with whales. Then he grabs his biker gang and hauls ass to the beach, where he finds a group of old people fighting off men trying to chop up the whales. Specifically, there's an old lady smacking one of these dudes in the face with a pink slipper, because all the old women in this book are fucking awesome. The bikers and the old folks fend them off until the rangers arrive, who of course immediately try to arrest Ruiri and his friends until the old people stick up for them. Then they all set about to the task of trying to save the damn whales. They manage to get 140 of them back into the water until the really upsetting thing I described happens, where where they, they just come back because they can't leave their dead friends. And literally all the fucking whales rebeach themselves and they all die. And the old lady tells Riri that even the good guys can't win all the time. Sometimes 200 whales just aggressively commit suicide despite your best efforts. Welcome to the world, kids. It's full of dead whales. Yeah. I'm fine. Riri gets home and sees Kahu on the beach making whale noises and waits for a reply that doesn't come, because Jesus Christ, I wasn't sad enough already. The weather gets worse, but Koro and Pororangi are finally able to get a flight back. Riri, Nanny Flowers, and Kahu meet them at the airport, and they all head home. Between the ongoing apocalyptic storm and the vast multitude of suicidal whales, Koro believes that these are signs that the end is near for their people, and for once it doesn't seem like he's being a melodramatic old grouch. 200 dead whales will do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean you hope they didn't die for nothing so at least someone learned a lesson oh no he hasn't learned shit yet we'll get there oh so we're gonna get there (laughs) no i'm saying we're gonna get there where i'm going to point out that he hasn't learned shit yet oh fine (laughs) as they're heading back to the house kahu stops and stares at the beach causing everyone else to do the same as our friend the ancient bull whale who by the way is fucking enormous like mythically so proceeds to beach himself closely followed by his whale pot, who, who don't exactly beach themselves, but sort of awkwardly hover behind him like, well, maybe we'll do it. I don't know. And Ruiri is like, well, shit, here we go again. And goes to get the rest of his biker gang, while Koro instructs Pororangi to gather all the men in the village to come help. And Nanny Flowers is like, uh, y- you know, the women can also be of use here. And Koro is like, hey, Just because we're dealing with a crazy bordering on supernatural emergency doesn't mean I still can't be a sexist ass about it. Now go away so you don't get your gross women hands on the spirit whale. So no, he hasn't learned anything yet. Oh, then the whales died for nothing. (laughs) And Nanny Flowers is like, you can't stop us. Specifically, you can't stop Kahu, despite neither of us mentioning her previously. Koro, for like the hundredth time, says, keep Kahu away. 
She is of no use to me. Like those words. Exactly. Foreshadowing. So Koro gathers the men in the meeting house to try to figure out what to do. And he gives a speech that's actually pretty interesting as like magical realism in a cultural context, as well as what one literary critic referred to as mag-eco-realism. Because like environmentalism and a spiritual connection with nature, I guess. It's a real dumbass word smush of a, a term, but let me just read the section real quick because it's some really cool writing. You have all seen the whale, he said. You have all seen the sacred sign tattooed on its head. Is the tattoo there by accident or by design? Why did a whale of its appearance strand itself here and not at Wanui? Does it belong in the real world or the unreal world? The real, someone called. Is it natural or supernatural? It is supernatural, a second voice said. Koro Apirana put up his hands to stop the debate. No, he said, it is both. It is a reminder of the oneness that the world once had. It is the birth cord joining the past and present, reality and fantasy. It is both. It is both, he thundered. And if we have forgotten the communion, then we have ceased to be Maori. The wind whistled through his words. The whale is a sign, he began again, and has stranded itself here. If we are able to return it to the sea, then that will be proof that the oneness is still with us. If we are not able to return it, then this is because we have become weak. If it lives, we live. If it dies, we die. Not only its salvation, but ours is waiting out there. Koro Apirana closed his eyes. His voice drifted in the air and hovered, waiting for a decision. Shall we live, or shall we die? Our answer was an acclamation of pride in our tribe. Koro Apirana opened his eyes. Okay then, boys. Let's go down there and get on with it. I just, I like that the idea. Is it real or unreal? Is it natural or supernatural? It's both. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it is. So they try to flip the whale around, and Ruiri almost gets crushed and drowns, and every attempt they make fails. To the point where even Koro is like, okay, this is a shit show. Get the women out here. We need all the help we can get. So you know the situation is dire when he's willing to swallow his pride on that one. But the whale, in the ultimate act of suicidal spite, swims away into the water, still shallow enough for it to die, but just deep enough where no one can get close enough to help. Kahu appears and asks Koro why the whale is doing this, and Koro says, quote, Our ancestor wants to die. There is no place for it here in this world. The people who commanded it are no longer here. When it dies, we die. I die. That's, you know... That's a lot for an eight-year-old. But the part about if whale dies, great-granddad dies, gets through her little baby head, and we all know how much she loves that old ass bag, so Kahu's course becomes clear to her. She's gonna make that fucking whale turn around and go back home, even if she has to ride it the whole way there. That's right. The stakes have been raised. Indeed. No one notices her swimming off to it at first, until Ruiri spots her and dives in after her, even as the waves are surging as the storm carries on. She smacks into this giant whale, and at first he thinks she must have fallen into its mouth. And he's like, oh fuck, I'll just have to go in and get her. Because seriously, no one loves this kid like Ruiri does. But actually, she's hanging on to one of its side fins for dear life. He hears Kahu sing to the whale and tell it that she's Kahutia Tirangi, and the whale's like, yeah, okay, that checks out. And suddenly the whale's skin forms indentations for her to climb up onto its back and it makes a little seat for her. And having watched the movie first, this admittedly is the part of the book where I was like, what the fucking shit? <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> Not that. 
Oh. Not the whale reforming its body shape to be like, hop on! Like Transformers. <laughs> Whales in disguise. And then she rides away. She does it. She is the whale rider. <laughs> the The next chapter is the odd one out, as it's the only one told from sort of Kahu's perspective in the third person. It's very short, and is essentially... This eight-year-old is fucking terrified, but she is Kahutia Teragi. She is... Paikia, she is the whale rider, and she has saved her people, and she is ready to die. Like, damn, son. When I was eight, I was struggling with my seven times tables and a baby crush I had on my best friend, Michael, who spent a year convincing everyone he was an alien. Did it work? No. Oh. He was just a weird kid. <laughs> he was very cute, though. What were you doing when you were eight? No idea. You don't remember shit from when you were eight? Not really. Fourth grade, wait. Third. Oh, I was in fourth grade. Yeah. I'm smart. Good for you. I don't know. I was there. Living. Crushing. Cr- crushing puss. <laughs> crushing puss. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, as she disappears, Nanny Flowers, crying, hands Koro his special car of stone, and he says, which of the boys got it? Not even who got it. Which of the boys? Like, goddamn, dude. Context clues. Which of the boys got it? <laughs> Who used their wayfinder to find it? And Nanny just points at the ocean like, you figure it out. Speaking of wives having to tell their husbands to get a fucking clue, the whales are swimming along and the ancient bull whale's wife sees this little figure in a white dress on her husband's back, Basically drowning, but also not drowning because magic. And is like, uh, what you got there? And he's like, oh, my old buddy Pikea, the whale rider. Of course. And all the other whales, you know, they know how he's been lately and that he almost just killed himself over how weird he's gotten about remembering his whale rider. And so things get really tense and the other whales kind of back off. But she's like, honey, sweetie, light of my life. I don't think so. And he's like, what? But when he got on, he said my name was Kahutia Tirangi, and that's Paikia's other name, so you know, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And his wife is like, yeah, but was Paikia a tiny human girl? Like, like, think back. Think real hard. And he thinks about it for a while, and he's like, shit, he was not. I guess we have to give her back. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. Because she, she does say, you know, he, to be fair, she's probably a descendant of Kahutia Tsurangi, but we should still probably put her back. <laughs> we then find out that Nanny Flowers collapsed shortly afterward and has spent the last five days in the hospital. She wakes up and learns that three days after she was admitted and everyone assumed Kahu was dead, they found her floating unconscious on some kelp in the middle of the ocean, guarded by fucking dolphins. Now, how they just stumbled upon her in the middle of the ocean is not specified. As Weary just said, you know, that they had assumed she was dead, so it seems like they wouldn't be looking for her. So I don't know how, I'm curious how they just found her. Like, she didn't wash up on the shore. It very specifically says they found her floating in the middle of the ocean. And I mean, that's pretty far from Miami for the dolphins to find her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the joke we're going here. I mean, you would think Dan Marino would be busy practicing or something. There he is. Dan Marino hasn't been a dolphin for close to 30 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, but this was the 80s. That he was a dolphin then. Oh, damn it. You got me there. Yeah, him, Mark Shit. Cooper. Shit, you You're got the Mark, me. Yeah. You played me. 
Coach Shula out there. He's like, come on, guys, let's go find this kid. He saw he saw the news report, yeah, like on CNN International or something. He gathered up the boys. Guys, we are gonna find this girl. Now the thing is, though, they employed Smartflake, Snowflake, and Snowflake was actually the one who found her. Nobody is gonna get that reference. What people love Snowflake. Was Snowflake actually the Miami Dolphins dolphin, or is that just a thing for Mace Ventura? No, they had the dolphin in the end zone, and it would do flips and shit. Oh, that was that it. was a real thing. Yeah, Snowflake. Huh. I didn't, I didn't know that. There you go. I was a very small child when that was a thing. Well, alrighty then. <laughs> and now we know. <laughs> so either way, ho- however they did it, with the help of the Miami Dolphins or otherwise, we said dolphins. <laughs> They found Kahu. She's in the hospital in the same room as Nanny Flowers, currently in a coma. Koro opines that this is all his fault, and Nanny Flowers says, and I quote, Yeah, it sure is. Mm-hmm. God, I love her so much. He basically flagellates himself for a few pages while Nanny Flowers just agrees, like, yes, exactly. You were an absolute bastard, and this was entirely preventable. Until Kahu wakes up and comments that literally all they do is argue. It's their love language, Kahu. She says they remind her of the ancient bull whale and his wife, in case we didn't pick up on that parallel, and that she's sorry that she fell off the whale, and that she wouldn't have if she was a boy. Koro picks her up and hugs her and says that she's the best great-grandchild in the whole world, boy or girl. Aww. <laughs> Would have been nice if she hadn't had to almost die saving her village from symbolic doom by riding a giant fucking whale, but you know, whatever works. And then she says that he's the best granddad in the whole world, which is objectively untrue. The end. Or as the whales say, Finn. And that's Will Rider. (laughs) Son of a bitch. (laughs) Ha 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 ha! I'm fast. I think quick on my feet. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, in terms of adaptations, there's the big one—the thing that people know much more than the book, which is why the cover of this book is just plastered with pictures of the movie. It's the movie from 2003. It won a whole bunch of fucking awards. It's star Keisha Castle Hughes was the youngest person to be nominated for an Oscar until Kevonjane Wallace was nominated for Beasts of the Southern Wild. It was a whole big thing. And instead, Monster won. Whatever her name is. Uh, Charlize Theron. Yeah. Shit. Shit. Ain't she Australian? No. Is Charlize Theron Australian? She ain't American, is she? I am not sure. Oh, South African. Uh, so, the movie is very different from the book. <laughs> Go on. Well, the, the biggest one is that it is entirely focused on Kahu, who is not called Kahu, but Pi for whatever reason. Instead of being named after Kahutia Tehrangi, she they decide that she's named after Paikia, and they just call her Pai. I don't know why this change is made. Um, no Dan Marino in this version, <laughs> sadly. They age her up to 12, because that is a much more appropriate age to die for your people. <laughs> 
But yeah, we we do away with like the outside narrator and stuff like that. In fact, Pi is the narrator in this version. We lose the whole being shuffled between her family and back again, which like fair enough, that shit was confusing. Instead, they have her dad just kind of leave. Poraragi's like an artist. And so he just, like, doesn't want to be in New Zealand for whatever reason. And so she's essentially raised by Koro and Nanny Flowers. And as we mentioned, Koro's much less of a dick. He's initially pretty pissed off that she's not a boy. But again, we see here that he, he loves her as a member of the family. But he gets mad whenever she tries to do boy things. She's not allowed to be the leader. Yeah. And he's he's okay with that. Yeah. yeah. She's fine otherwise. Yeah. But her problem to him is she wants to still be the leader even though he says she can't. Yeah. As opposed to in the book where her existence makes him mad. <laughs> Nanny Flowers is just sort of there. She's much less of a, a raging badass. <laughs> Ruiri is done the most dirty. Because they make him fat? Well, no, because they make him, like, it's not even that he's fat. It's that he's, like, oh, he's the second son. That he was never going to be the chief. So he's just, like, he lays around on his ass and, like, gets high all day. And feels, like, just sort of directionless. And that he's just, like, this lazy layabout son. Like, he's kind of a loser. Until, like, Pi gives him purpose. He's, like, the comedic, goofy character. He's, like, a comedy relief. Because he's fat, that's part of it. Like, uh, she needs someone to, like, teach her to do cool things with, like, a ceremonial staff. And we learned that Ruiri used to be good at that. And so that's how she learns, because she goes behind Koro's back and is like, teach me to do that. And, like, it's played for laughs, because it's like, oh, he could kind of still do it, sort of, but it's funny because he's fat now. Which is like, oof. And Book Ruiri is just a cool dude. Who rides around on a motorcycle and loves his niece and, like, still very much participates in, like, the preservation of his tribe's cultural heritage and shit. He's really, he's ready to, like, dive into the fucking mouth of a whale to save her. Yeah. The movie did him dirty. I will say that while Koro is less of an asshole in the movie also, he's a lot less sort of complex. Because... In the book, like, yeah, he's dickhead. But because we spend more time with Ruiri, we do see more... Because we get more context for the Maori culture, and we learn more about Koro and what he spends his time doing, and why he's so fucking obsessed with finding a boy, with finding a bapinist young man to ensure the tribe's future, and kind of keep the the culture going and we don't really get as much of that in the movie and i think part of that is um something that the movie caught shit for because one of the big things that the movie caught shit for is the fact that it's directed by a white new zealander that she wasn't maori nikki caro yes and i mean she had ihimara's blessing like he was fine with it but other people were not pleased about that and the fact that because you take away the outside narration and you focus it entirely on kahu and or pai is uh the movie doesn't have any white people in it it is entirely focused on wangara and so by pretending that kind of like the white people don't exist 
you lose that the reason behind that like anxiety of why Maori culture is disappearing and the, you know the the effects of colonization and a lot of the things that Weary encounters when he goes to Australia and when he goes to Papua New Guinea and so you you lose a lot of that kind of complexity and things like that so there's that part of it then the differences in the adaptation but one of the things that I did think was interesting is it's more kind of seems like the story that his daughters asked for. Yeah. Because, you know, they said, we want, we're tired of the stories where boys are the heroes and the girls are saying, save me, save me. It's much more a story where there's a girl, she keeps wanting to be a leader and do these boy things, and she can't be stopped. And you tell her no, and she's going to do it anyway. The book Whale Rider... Uh, maybe that was his tension or his intentions in the beginning, but the book doesn't end up being that. Kahu, the character, isn't really the focus, and she's kept very much at arm's length. We don't get a lot of insight into, like, who she is, except that, you know, she's got her Maori Aquaman powers and her completely baseless and unwavering love for Koro. <laughs> and... You know, it, it's not really, like, she, we know that she has a, a destiny that Ruiri keeps referring to. And that almost seems like it's not, like, an active choice on her part that she's going to save her people. It's just, she's destined. She's named after their ancestor. It's gonna happen. So, it seems like, kind of like a give and take here, adaptation-wise. So, in other words, Moana really nails it. <laughs> Yes. Yep, that's it. That's what we're taking away from this. Moana. <laughs> make way. Make, make way. way. Also, Moana is in the glossary at the back of this book. Oh, because it means sea. Yeah. Yeah. That's a dumb thing to name your daughter if you never want her to go in the fucking ocean. No. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, never go beyond the reef, daughter who I have named for the thing that goes beyond the reef. Right, you're it. You're the embodiment. You don't need to go out there. The sea is wherever you are. Because you're the sea. Name her island. Name her whatever the word for, like, tree is or roots. Name her for a very land-based thing. It's so crazy how our daughter that we named after the sea is so obsessed with the sea. Yeah. I'm gonna name my daughter Dan Marino. <laughs> what? Now it's that part of the show that we always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. Shalom. K-Tal. I'm trilingual. You're not, you're barely monolingual. Whale rider. Yep. Good or bad? Good. Captures a people, a culture, and a story that's transgressive. Gotta love a good transgressive narrative. Yeah. 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 Another good word for you people. I'm teaching so many words today. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on that then? On the word? Yeah. Transgressive? If you want to teach, if you're going to teach people a word, teach them a fucking word. I'll let you take it from here. You're not going to try <laughs> to explain it? No, you can't. We share the labor here. I used it correctly in context. They can word it that way. If you want to give more information, you can Otherwise, go to your local library, or Megan's going to define it for you. Sure. Oh, I'm trying to keep the cat calm. It's an important job. Uh, 
relating to fiction, cinematography, or art in which orthodox cultural, moral, and artistic boundaries are challenged by the representation of unconventional behavior in the use of experimental forms. Boom. I wanted to make sure I gave, like, the good and proper definition. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Megan. Yeah, The writer of the whales. Indeed. Good, bad, or otherwise. How many Dan Marinos do you give it? We've established way back in the beginning that I'm not very good when we do a system of numbers, which is why we have this set up the way we do. Or, okay, how about we'll use Miami Dolphin coaches, all right? At one end, <laughs> we got Tony Sperano, not Soprano, but Sperano. What are the odds? At the other end, we got Don Shula. In the middle, you got, you know, like Jimmy Johnson, Dave Wanstad, the stash. Where among uh, the many Miami Dolphin coaches does this one rank? <laughs> I'm thinking Dave Wanstead. Now, Don Shul is the good end, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the Sopranos is the bad end. The Sperano, yes, yes. That, in there. <laughs> that poor guy. It wasn't his fault he was a bad coach. And then he died. That really wasn't his fault either. That's God's fault. I don't even know how to approach that. Um... <laughs> Well, no, is, I guess Cam is, Cameron is really the the bad end, even below Sperano. That man's name is Cam Cameron. It's, it's good. How about we just say it's good? All right, so we'll say Dave Wanstead. Okay. Maybe at the time, you know, the book wasn't huge. It needed help from the movie, right? Yeah. But when you look back then at the book, you realize how underrated it was at the time. Yes. And then you start longing for the good old days. It's a good book. It's, it's a quick read. I'm a sucker for magical realism. Like I said, I don't think it's quite the book that maybe he intended or his daughters were asking for, but I think it is very interesting in how it chooses to explore culture in a context and how it blends its narratives and its point of views. And also, I want Nanny Flowers to be my great-grandmother in real life because she rules. So, good. So that'll do it here on Oh No Lit Class. <laughs> yes, that'll, that'll do it on this episode of Oh No Lit Class. Our next episode will come out July 23rd. See you then. Stop. I'm RJ. <laughs> if you enjoy the show. They're Megan. Against all odds, please. Uh, write, subscribe, yep. click. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the whales. Tell the dolphins. Yeah. Uh, how would telling the whales sound like? Hey, yo, fucking whale! <laughs> you look over here! Hey, you listen to this fucking podcast! Hey, whales! Listen to this podcast here! Some good shit! Yeah, yeah just like that. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. Join the Facebook group. Do the Patreon at patreon.com slash onolickclass. Find links to all these things and more at onolickclass.com. Uh, RJ said, next episode, July 23rd. I'm Megan. I'm still RJ. Yep. We love you. Bye. You know, this reminds me of like playing The Sims. When maybe you get some people in a pool and you remove the ladder. And maybe then you put the ladder down to what a few uh, sinners escape the pool. But then you take the ladder back away and you trap one in there. And then people jump back in anyway. They didn't learn their lesson the first time. How does this and then they die. <laughs>
Love The Sims.